Think about a podcast ad about a mattress. No one needs another podcast ad about a mattress, but here's the thing. Your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make in your life. It's the same thing with infrastructure monitoring. You don't think about it often, but it's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. So get your monitoring hosted in the cloud with Pessler PRTG Hosted Monitor. Now with 50% off monthly subscriptions for new customers for the first three months. Go to PRTG.com and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS. That's PRTG.com with the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word. Formula One is, in my opinion, the premier auto racing series in the world. F1 cars are bleeding edge technical marvels wrapping exotic hybrid drivetrains and a complex aerodynamics package around a centrally seated driver in an open cockpit. The cars are so fast around corners that the G-loads alone demand drivers of exceptional skill and physical fitness. Each F1 season, the Formula One organization and the teams travel from racing circuit to racing circuit, setting up and tearing down the entire show everywhere they go. Modern F1 racing is bathed in data, real-time vehicle telemetry, in-car video feeds, more video from camera crews and drones, communication between teams and the FIA, F1's governing body, feeds to trackside screens in the broadcast center, live streaming, the F1 TV premium app, and more I'm sure I haven't even thought of yet. Well, you know what all this needs? A network. Our guests today are David Ramsden, Senior Network Engineer, and Lee Wright, Head of IT Operations, both at Formula One. They have joined us for today's Heavy Networking to describe what they do from week to week with the traveling roadshow that is F1. Uh, So Lee, um, with that setup here, would you introduce to the audience the, the role that the F1 network plays? I was trying to imagine it here with all these different systems that connect. Could you describe it as like a hub that interconnects team networks and broadcast networks in the FIA? Or is it more of like your own big giant network? Talk to us about it. So I'd describe it as, a, as our own big giant network that forms the backbone of the Formula One operation. Um, we have a, a, a network that runs around the track. We have a network that runs through with the teams in the garages. And we acquire all those signals from the cars, from the cameras, from the microphones. And we aggregate them all into one uh, central technical center. That technical center then is, is in, uh, built with encoders and uh, hardware to aggregate those, those data signals and to transmit them across our wide area network. That, and then from there, the, what the signals arrive at our media and technology center in Kent, where they are processed and produced into the Formula One program that everybody knows and loves. Ah, okay. So there was just a big piece of the puzzle that uh, fell into place for me. So we've got the network at the track that's gathering all of this data, but then that's backhauled to Kent in the UK, where you then distribute that data out to wherever it needs to go all over the world. Absolutely, yes. All all those signals are acquired at the track, but they are processed and distributed from our media and technology center. Got it. Okay. So that's so, globally because F1 is watched by a lot of people and it's not uh, like it's streamed, you know, by a few people here and a few people here and a hundred million watched it over the last six months. That's a very different proposition to a hundred million people are watching it right now. Yeah, absolutely. So no matter where we are in the world, all those signals are aggregated in that same technical footprint sent mm. across our wide area network provided by our official broadcast connectivity provider in Tata Communications, and then processed in the UK for distribution 23 times in this year in 23. 
Now, I know earlier this year we were talking about uh, trying to get this recording done, and you guys were absorbed with this race and then that race as uh, as the roadshow kicked off here. We're, we're still very early as we record this in the, uh, the 2023 season. Um, could you walk us through your schedule for a race week? Um, how do you, you, I'm imagining there's a bunch of equipment that gets packed up, hauled to the track, unpacked and assembled and cabling done. Could you could you talk us through that process? Yeah, so um, we actually have two two structures, um, which we refer to as the event technical center. They leapfrog each other around the world. Um, so they get shipped out to the race and Roughly 10 days before the event, um, the rigging team will start to construct that um, for us. Um, whilst all the other um, freight is sent in to the to the track. Um, so we transport that primarily if it's if it's a flyaway, i.e., it's out of outside of Europe, um, that's transported on two jumbo jets. If we're inside Europe, we have a fleet of um of of trucks that take the, the equipment to the to the circuit. And like I say, that, that consists of our event technical center, um, all of the fiber that we need to pull in around the track as well. Um, and that's all done 10 days prior to us, as in the IT team, turning up. Um, so we'll typically get there on, if it's a European, a, a Monday, if it's a, a flyaway uh, on a Tuesday. And we need to get everything up and running and ready by Thursday morning. So we get it roughly two days if we're lucky two and a half days to uh to get everything up and running um and do all our testing can you give us a scope i mean like how many we're talking about you're talking about trucks you're talking about jumbo jets so it sounds like a considerable number of racks servers switches i'm assuming lots and lots and lots of fiber can you give us a sense of the scale yeah so in the event technical center itself we have um we have three technical containers um, so these are containers that you put the sides on it and you can just forklift it onto an aeroplane and then it reaches the other destination. You take the sides back off of it again. Each um, container consists of eight racks, so a row of four and then behind it another row of four. And those are filled top to bottom with um, broadcast equipment, audio equipment, network equipment, uh, everything that we need technically to get the show on the road. Uh, there's also a, a fourth container, which is the audio container. And again, in the back of that, there's um, four racks, again, filled with uh, audio equipment and network equipment. And in the front of that is where the sound guys sit and they do all the mixing for the show from that as well. So we need four containers that go inside the event technical center. Uh, they get forklift in place. Um, everything's obviously already cabled up. Um, yeah. And we just run cross connects between the containers to, to link them all together. Those containers must be oddly, like they're not just off the shelf racks. They would be earthquake ready racks or transportable racks that are, and all the cables would be immobilized so that they couldn't fracture or get damaged in transit. Because moving containers around is not a gentle process, shall we say? Um, no, it's not a gentle process. We have, we have, um, G-Shock sensors inside the containers as well so that we can make sure they haven't been dropped mm. um, it, because, you know, it can happen. It's, um, mm. it's, it's a risk that we, that we carry. Um, but they're not, they're not specially adapted. They are um, mm -hmm. standard racks. You know, the equipment that's in them is, is standard. We may put them on specially mount, um, special rack mount brackets to, to hold them in place a bit more firmly. Mm. Um, but other than that, it's um, it's just a standard 
Okay, so it's not super weird, mystical, physical setup inside, except for a bit bit of basic preventative maintenance. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. We go around check check all the bolts are tight, um, and it's it's good to go. But it, yeah, it flies around the world and um, touch woods. We've not had any issues. Is one rack a spare, or is there's just spares inside the rack? Uh, sorry, the container. Um, so we carry we carry spares with us. So that's that's a good point. You know, hmm. we have to expect that things do go wrong. The environments that we work in, you know, they're either hot, they're extremely humid. Some of the kit might be outside. It gets it gets wet. It gets full of carbon brake dust. So in a separate container, we can t- we carry spares with us because it's just a lot easier hmm. than calling up your support vendor and saying, "Hey, you know, I've I've dropped a switch." Off of a forklift, can you uh, can you get me one in the next couple of hours? So that, that, that just doesn't happen. Oh, and by the way, I, I'm in you know Brazil at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah that's right. That, that just that just doesn't that just doesn't happen. So we carry spares that's... with us, and they they, mm. they they go in a separate container. Right. I just you picked up on something you said. So you have sensors that are the cars would put on the brakes and stuff like that, and but you still see them, or is it you're talking about? some sort of wireless or some sort of physical stuff that comes back. Cause the idea of computer equipment being covered in carbon brake dust, because it's inside a car, but it's still your problem. Not normal. Sounds like not normal. <laughs> the, well, the, the, the carbon brake dust actually. So, um, and we'll, we'll come on to this. So we have, we have nodes that we place around, around the track. So these are oh. connection points um, you know, where we bring back cameras and wireless and all these things that we need. Mm. Um, and they sit, beside the track and they just get you know filled with with carbon brake dust from the cars going by and braking it's um it's quite incredible how much stuff gets sucked into these into these uh, into these nodes. I always I'm always frightened by how much rubber they lose because those mm. tires they go out with 3 or 4 inches and then after like 10 laps it's gone yeah. and that's just that went somewhere right yeah <laughs> and it wasn't yeah, yeah so mm. yeah, the 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 environmentals is is another um, diff- ch- uh, challenging part of the of the job as well. Now you're talking about these connection points that you've scattered all around the track, and uh, you did mention having to roll your own fibers. How much fiber are we talking to connect all this up? We're talking of around 60 kilometers of fiber to, to connect it all together. That that connects everything from the the wireless sites, the cameras, the Ethernet network, um, and it also runs a CWDM layer over the top. And this is all your fiber that you're rolling out uh, at each track, or is this like a track's got its own facility and you glom onto that? Uh, no, we, we roll out our own. Um, over the years, we've developed the processes for quickly commissioning, cleaning, and, and testing our own infrastructure. Uh, when that infrastructure isn't known to us, it's often quite complicated to, to commission. Mm. <laughs> I was just thinking that fiber, it, it would be something normal, normal people would write it into the contract and say, you have to provide us with fiber. But the balance here is that it has to work, and I'll bet it only gets used once a year. And so, who knows if it's working when the, uh, you know, when it comes around? You can't afford to rely on somebody else. Is is the key here? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and we know we, we carry spares for our own fiber. We know how it's presented. We know how it works. We know how to carefully look after it. We rig and derig it. Yeah. How does that work at a street circuit? I just imagining a street circuit would be more challenging to roll that fiber out as opposed to a dedicated track facility. Yeah, as I understand it, it is. Um, but we've we we have space beside the the barriers for for laying our cabling. Yeah. Okay. The street the street circuits can be challenging for the uh, for our in-house fibre team and, and the rigging team because um, 
on these street circuits, they do open the, open the roads up, right? So every so often they have to move a concrete barrier and it means that we might have to de-rig our kit, move some cables out of the way for them to open the road up and then rig that again the next day. So it is, it is a challenge, yeah. Another question is about the pits and the garage areas. All the teams are there. They got their own, their own telemetry coming off the cars and so on. Where does the teams network start and uh, the F1 network start? Do they, do they, I'm imagining there's two different networks and they kind of meet in the, in the middle there somewhere. Yeah, so the team run their own IT infrastructure with their own IT networks, um, but we provide them with two of our, uh, of our switches in, the, in each garage. And those switches will carry services such as um, Wi-Fi for tire data acquisition, um, streaming video feeds, telemetry data, timing data, um, access to high-speed pit stop cameras, that sort of thing. Okay, so there's another story here you got to tell us then, which is how the network got to where it is today. Uh, and I know when you were planning this call, you said uh, COVID drove a lot of changes for how you guys do this traveling roadshow. Yeah, sure. So during 2019, uh, a small group of us gathered to discuss how we wanted to um, approach our goal of sustainability, which was to be a remote operation and a production. Uh, and after running some of the figures, we, we came up with a realistic bandwidth figure that we required of around about seven gigabits a second to split the acquisition from the processing and distribution um, um between ourselves and uh, tata communications we um, devised a wide area network to plug the two together we did our first remote operation and production from uh, the track in barcelona for uh, the winter winter testing um and as it happened, straight from from the out the, in, on its first outing, everything worked as we expected. Um, mm. There was a, there was a lot of lessons learned about resilience and failover uh, and, and that sort of thing, and and, the, and some of the fundamental technologies we used. But we actually put a production out remotely. Um, then everything was brought back to the UK. Uh, we d- went off to the first race that year, exactly as we'd done every other year previous. Um, and then the COVID pandemic hit. The, the race in Australia in 2020 was cancelled um, and we freighted all of our equipment home um, while we while the world developed and we understood a lot more about COVID. Um, and our technical director at the time asked the, the group of us, you know, if we, if we had to do a remote production for real as we'd already done as a proof of concept, could we do it? Uh, and the, the voices around the table were pretty unanimous. Yes, we can. We've already mm-hmm. done it. Mm. Um, so after a short period, um, we, we rebuilt that acqui- temporary acquisition system we developed for the Spanish winter test that became two technical containers to make sure we had all the resilience and all of the, um, all of the failover capabilities we expected, um, between us and Tata communications, we developed this, um, Ethernet layer that connected the acquisition systems at the track to our processing and distribution systems in our media and technology center. And the network team developed the overlay. And uh, essentially, we developed a, a VXLAN overlay that allowed us to um, decide which way we were routing data. We had two deterministic paths around the world, um, and the data was transmitted as one plus one. So all the video is sent over both links all the time. Um, that first live Grand Prix was Austria in 2020. Um, I think it was a great success and we've been remote ever since. Is that good for you? Does that mean less travel? <laughs> it did for me. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it's all fun and good going to Formula One and watching the cars go around in circles when you start out. But after about the, you know, the 30th or 40th time, it's like <laughs> cars going around in circles. Or do you still get that buzz of excitement? Uh, I think we still worry when we're watching those NMS systems uh, telling mm. us what's good, what's bad and what's ugly. Um, but in, in, in the most part, yeah, we still enjoy it. Yeah. Okay. Now you mentioned seven gigabits per second and you've mentioned video along the way. And I think that's, we, we haven't said it yet, but it's kind of the elephant in the room. The vast majority of your data payload is video. Uh, yes. So we, that, that, of that seven gigabits a second, we were pretty, pretty bang on with the, with our calculations. There's around about two and a half gigabits of broadcast video, and that is sent twice. So it's sent over, uh, we have a concept of a, a red link and a blue link, a, a primary and a secondary. Um, that video is sent over both of them in parallel, and then it's deduplicated at the far end. Um, then we've got our onboard camera system. So all of those, all of the video signals for the onboard camera system required at the track, they're sent back to the UK and processed and deduplicated in the UK. Hmm. Um, and that uh, that accounts for at, at its peak with all cars on the grid all transmitting their onboard cameras around about three and a half gigabits a second. Hmm. Um, and then on top of that, uh, we've we've got around two gigabits a second of data. Hmm. So the so the broadcast video feed that I'm watching on the, in in the US that's distributed. I think I watch it through ESPN. Uh, is that mixed at the track and then that sent out as a feed or does the video mixing like all the streams hit in the UK, it gets mixed and then distributed to broadcasters? So the the fixed track cameras that you see that, that that's pointing at the track, there's, there's mm-hmm. around about 25 of them. They are mixed into one continuous stream. Everything else is uh, sent back to the UK and produced as a program in the UK. And it has to be said for the people who are listening is that Formula One headquarters is in the uk the company has historically uh, been established here that owns the event is based in the uk and that's why it's done here yes that's correct yeah okay so the uh, all the unique in-car fees and so on that you're streaming all the way back to the uk that's in part because of the uh, the f1 tv app is that right uh yes it is it is a predominantly the, uh, the, the predominant customer for our onboard camera feeds is the f1 tv app but all of those uh, video feeds are able are recorded and are able to be replayed back into the program yeah. through uh, the the computer systems in the UK. Yes, yes, I enjoy that. I I see that bit as we uh, we judge what driver made what mistake. You know, when they miss the apex and so on, they cut to the in car camera feed. I do it does liven up the broadcast feed an awful lot. But uh, but I'm also aware, yeah, that on that F1 TV app, which I don't have, but I've been tempted. Uh, that I can pick whatever driver I want is how it's uh, how the marketing goes for that and and be on board as they're uh, they're going around the track. So talk about your uh, talk about your hardware stack because I'm I'm listening to this and it sounds like I don't need anything super exotic switch wise or anything. But can you can you tell us some of the uh, the switching equipment, routing equipment, maybe firewalls? I I acknowledge you guys aren't going to maybe talk about vendors and stuff, but you could give us a sense of what you've got in the racks. That would be cool. So over the winter build that happens um, during Christmas, just gone, um, we actually redeveloped our uh, UK uh, side of things, so our media and technology centre, and we deployed a brand new um, facility for this, um, which is based on um, a BGP EVPN. So prior to that, if you imagine, we had a everything travelled. So pre pre COVID everything traveled to the track and everything was produced out of the track and then sent via satellite back out to the UK. 
And as Lee said, COVID came along and we effectively had to split the operation into two to, to, to go remote. So the network prior to, to Christmas was still the old track network. Um, and we developed a new network for this season, which is, uh, as I said, BGP EVPN based, um, 100 gig um, uplinks back to the spine. Um, so there's, there's plenty of bandwidth um, mm-hmm. that should see us through to the, to the future. Trackside, it's it's much more of a traditional kind of collapsed core distribution access layer, um, and that's simply because of the way we operate. You know, we we can't have a nice fancy leaf spine layer; it just just wouldn't wouldn't work. Um, and trackside, we we need about a forty gig backbone um, for the for the network there mm-hmm. in the UK because that's where we're doing a lot more of the processing. Um, that's a hundred gig backbone. And so how do you a, handle distance? Because some of those racetracks are five kilometers. Well, they're five kilometers in what circumference? Length? What do they call it? Um, and, and, you know, getting to the other side, you could be looking at two four-kilometer runs from one end to the other. Do you, do you have special, like using single mode or is it multi-mode or CWDM? Yeah, so it's all single modes that we use. Um, again, one of the decisions taken was we didn't really want to mix um, multi-mode and single mode. We, it just means having to carry around a lot more fiber, a lot mm. more spares mm. with us. So we, we standardized on using single mode. Um, and at the track, like you say, you know, you could have a very, a very long run. Mm. Um, so we use, uh, you know, predominantly 10K SFPs. Could be, we could need an extended range possibly, um, depending on, on the run. Um, and it's all provided by our in-house fiber team. So we have this in-house fiber team, um, as we said at the start of the show, uh, that deploy um, two rings around the around the circuits. We have like an east and a west ring, and mm-hmm. then we attach our network onto that. So they provide us with a, uh, like an optical transport network, essentially. Okay, so that's that's the CWDM part that maybe you mentioned earlier, and then you've got uh, Ethernet nodes hanging off of that. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's also um, like an audio ring as well. So there's around 150 microphones that have to be rigged around the circuit, and they all get plugged into fiber. Um, that's not mm. IP based. It ends up at IP once it reaches the event technical center to be transmitted mm. back to the UK. Um, and yeah, there's 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 lots of fiber. There's fiber yeah. everywhere. <laughs> so the microphones are sending an an analog signal encoded on to onto laser somehow, like or fiber optical signal. Yes, yeah, very mm. similar to how the the cameras work as well. So the the mm. cameras aren't IP. Again, yeah. that's a that's a that's a future thing for us to to dive into. Mm. Um, but it will use uh, simply. 2022-6 um, yeah. to allow SDI over fiber. Um, mm-hmm. And then it gets encoded um, at the event technical center and then sent out as multicast back to the UK. Or it, again, it may go mm-hmm. go out raw from the event technical center to the giant screens that we have around the track. Yeah, that makes sense because a lot of that uh, camera slash audio, we know it could be turned into IP, but when you're doing it at real time, the actual encoding process becomes a problem. Um, I'm not an expert at this. So it's like when you turn the, the microphones 
and say, I'm going to encode this audio signal into IP and then transmit it. It becomes latent and you're actually out by several milliseconds. And it becomes very difficult to retime it back to the video, especially if it's propagating from, say, five kilometers away at the other end of the track back to the the core data center. It's the timing problems that you get. And the video and the cameras have to be absolutely precision aligned. Otherwise, the image that you're looking at and the audio going with it, the human eye and ear can instantly notice if they're not perfectly synchronized. Yes, Yes. that's right. Um, Mm -hmm. And... Once those signals are encoded as IP, we use precision time protocol to ensure that they remain in sync. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's magic there. That gets super <laughs> weird, super fast, like these media networks, which is what you're talking about, once that they've turned into IP. That gets really, really um, gnarly because the timing or the injection of IP means that the actual delay and jitter on the circuit can actually affect the production process. So you have to use precision timing protocol to uh, realign them when they're received and decoded at the other end. Let's pause the conversation for a message from sponsor Pessler. If you're a regular podcast listener, you've heard countless mattress ads. Now, Packet Pushers is not the kind of podcast where you'd hear a mattress ad, but maybe this is the closest we'll get. Now, the thing is, the only time you really think about your mattress is when it causes you aches and pains. That's why your choice of mattress is one of the most important decisions you can make. It's the same thing with monitoring. Your monitoring solution shouldn't cause you any aches and you shouldn't need to think about it. It's one of your most important decisions as an IT professional. Pessler PRTG monitoring software has been on the market for over 20 years and has over 500,000 users worldwide. Pessler PRTG hosted monitor is their cloud-based solution, which means Pessler takes care of updates, backups, and maintenance, and you just focus on monitoring. It's vendor agnostic with support for SNMP, WMI, flow protocols, and much more. Setup and configuration is quick. You can be monitoring within minutes without even installing any hardware. You get real-time dashboards and customizable notifications, and pricing is flexible. You have the choice of monthly or annual subscriptions based on the number of devices you need to monitor, so you can scale as needed. And Pessler is giving new customers 50% off their monthly subscription for the first three months. Go to prtg.com, that's prtg.com, and use the promo code PACKETPUSHERS, all one word, to take advantage of this offer. And make sure you always sleep soundly on a comfy mattress with a comprehensive monitoring tool. This offer ends October 2023. Now back to the podcast. Talk to us about uh, the global latency. So we talked about, you know, track, you know, more local latency, but what about hauling signal back to the UK for redistribution? What are the latency challenges there? Um, the speed of light is the predominant latency challenge there. <laughs> right. um, As but, everywhere, um, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we work with our um, official broadcast connectivity partner, Tata Communications, to uh, provide the um, a, a, a trade-off between the lowest possible latency and the most reliable links. So for every, pre every event, um, our, our architect at Tata Communications will prepare um, a, a map of that fiber optic path around the globe. So we know exactly what what fiber is used, what what um, what the cable system is, who's providing it, and it's very deterministic. That gets rid of any fears of jitter or um, variations that might be introduced by packet switch networks. So um, we, we we use a purely optical technology. So we use DWDM circuits from the track, wherever we are in the world, back to the UK. Hmm. Um, and then working with Tata, we will synchronize those latencies. So our systems, as, as, as we needed to use uh, protocols for seamless switching. So we need to know what our highest possible latency could be and what our lowest possible latency could be in order to tune those decoders to that and, and decoders and encoder pairs to that best possible latency. I always had the impression that jitter was worse 
it's not if you uh, if the latency is known and fixed it's easy to compensate it's when you get jitter in the stream so it varies between the latency is this and then it gets and then the latency changes to that that's where uh the video production process gets really upset yeah yeah absolutely so we 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 ensure that 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 once the latency is known it stays obviously mm-hmm. there's incidents where fiber paths change due to physical breaks in the cable system um, but where we would time our systems to the worst possible latency and the best possible latency, anything in between is is, mm. is acceptable and known. And with a little bit of buffer at the end, everything uh, remains in sync. There is some amount of buffering that's tolerable then. I was wondering about that. Yes, there has to be. There is the acquisition of video and audio isn't necessarily inherently in time and they need, they may need to be synchronized. But So a, a, a buffer is permitted. Yeah, gotcha. Okay. And what what we actually do is we run one of our circuits at the highest possible latency um, and the other one at the lowest possible latency. And the reason we do that is because racking, which is all the color correction, is done from the UK. So if we run one at the highest possible latency, the operators get used to that that latency. You know, when they turn a button to color correct something, they get used to that that delay it becomes easy for them if we ran it at the lowest possible latency and then we had a a path switch and it went up it takes the human mind you know it's a a lot lot trickier to adjust Mm. to that that change in in the higher latency Mm. you're color correcting um, on the fly wow yeah yeah yes yeah 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 they have to because if you imagine if there's if there's a a section of the track that's covered in cloud you know when when the when the track director cuts to that shot it will just look awful on TV. So there's people constantly back in the UK that are correcting the cameras remotely. Um, in fact, they could even operate the cameras remotely if they really wanted to, but we still have cameramen panning mm. around and zooming in. Well, you have to be on the ground to detect out of the ordinary events. You know, if something happens in the crowd and, you know, or if there's an accident, you can't really do that remotely because you don't know if it, you know, if the accident happens out of line of sight, you can't focus the camera yeah. on that easily. Not it's not an impossible problem to solve, but it's a hard problem to solve compared to putting somebody on the track. Yeah, and in that comparison of the network being the backbone of the infrastructure, that color correction, those remote controls, they they're operating on an IP network with the with the um, camera control units at the far end. Mm. Uh, likewise, our, our onboard cameras are all color corrected uh, remotely. Uh, that mm. is an operator with a computer operation panel that sending the signals across that wide area network. Uh, transmitted out of the track to the car and the changes made on the car are reflected back in the feed that's returned. Hmm. How do you monitor this monster? I just, so much of this data is like, it's it's real time or near real time with with just nominal delay, uh, millions of people watching this thing. And so you've got to be right on top of what the network is doing. This isn't SNMP polling every five minutes. You've got to be doing something something else that's much more, what's closer to real time. David is tuned into the matrix that is the syslog. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. So, so you're you're right. SNMP is just just doesn't work for this this real time kind of communication that we're that we're doing. Um, but we found actually the the best tool to use is Syslog, because as soon as that that message is generated, it pops up on our screen, and if mm. we've got them color coded, you know, it's very obvious to us when when something bad has happened because you see a big flash of red text in front of you. So, Syslog, I would say, is probably our primary monitoring tool. 
So talk about the sort of events that, that you would trigger on then. What would be a bad thing that would pop up in syslog and uh, cause a reaction? Um, so hardware events, um, for example. So losing losing a power supply, um, that's one that would, would trigger us and we would go off and replace that. Um, interfaces going up and down as well. Obviously, that does happen on a fairly regular basis. You know, As maybe a camera goes offline, you might get an interface down alert. But we've become accustomed now to what is normal and what isn't isn't normal mm. and like i say syslog is is a is a is a tool that we need to use because of that that real time nature um snmp is just not good enough but we've seen so many vendors talk about streaming telemetry off of their equipment um and say you know you could measure telemetry or pre-configure what telemetry you want to receive and it's it's fabulously transmitted over the very finest gnmi or you know some <laughs> custom protocol is that not practical or not workable that's why you're still stuck with you know the heritage syslog protocol or is it just the vendor that you've chosen it only works for them with this this way um so it's a bit of both i would say the mm. The network that's out at the track um, doesn't currently support streaming telemetry. Mm. Uh, the network that we have back in the UK does. Um, mm. That's part of our day two kind of operations that we're going to look into. Um, obviously, we run PTP um, inherently throughout all of our networks. So we're going to use that so that we can measure um, events down to microseconds because that's what is demanded of us. Um, mm. If if one packet goes missing when you're doing a live event, that will be seen on TV. Um, so we we have to ensure that everything is working as best as it as it can. You know, so as soon as something goes wrong on our talkback system, that you will have the the MCR calling through to you saying, "Just noticed a bit of breakup, and our analyzer shown one drop frame." Can you go and find where that packet has got to on the network and maybe give it back to us? <laughs> really? One one frame is is that you're talking one video frame or one Ethernet frame is noticeable? Yeah, one one video frame. So they, they will run analyzers on the network. Um I think we mentioned before we send the video in parallel down down both of our 10 gig circuits. And it gets stitched back together. So they're analyzing those two streams. And what this process does is, is it means that they can take both the streams and produce one good stream. So even if we we had horrible jitter on one or packet loss on one, they can stitch that, that video back together. But at that point, they've noticed that something's wrong and they're calling through to us. Gotcha. Okay. That's, that's mystical magic. I, yeah. it, it just strange. It seems strange to me, like that. You know, in 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 ten years of we're, we're talking about moving away from heritage monitoring, which was Syslog and SNMP, and yet, um, and you know, we're moving towards this telemetry and observability, but that's not workable at the level that you operate. And just my instinct here is that Syslog works, and you know that with the equipment you've got, it actually treats Syslog as a as the best possible, as a primary, and it's tested and it's valid, and the telemetry APIs just just aren't ready for this sort of use case. Yeah, we. To be fair, we haven't really investigated the telemetry side of it um, mm. too much at the moment. Um, we have the capability of doing it now. Uh, now that we've yeah. done our, our network upgrades back in the UK, and it was something that we will look at doing. But you just can't you can't get away from the legacy 
monitoring systems. No, it, I mean, yeah. is this log just works? You don't have to worry about yeah. having a controller or. It, I guess you know, it only matters for the for the two or three hours of the actual race or the pre-race activities. You know how far, how much work do you have to put in to solve the problem for this specific interval? And if syslog is working, why why go and reinvent that wheel? Well, the F1 um, sessions are only one part of the weekend. We also support mm. uh, other sessions, Formula Two, Formula Three, uh, mm. various different other manufacturers, any local series. So the, the the guys could be operating and monitoring this network for for eight to ten hours a day. Um, mm. So it's it, it's it, they they quickly get used to that 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 syslog feedback, the speed, the messages per hour, the the the, the color code color coding, and what items to look for. Mm. And but and it is a human being that's staring at the syslog flow, the matrix as you put it, as it scrolls by and reacting to uh, to color coded messages. It's not you've got some system that's ingesting the messages, and then uh, when it sees something, raising an alert or flagging. Yeah, it, it's it's the human eyes. So for for every event, we have two network engineers at the track and one network engineer in the UK. And between the three of them, rotating through it, they are monitoring those mm. in, the, those systems to to the nth degree. Mm. Okay. Well, let's talk about the cars for a minute, uh, in-car telemetry, because there's a whole lot of data coming off those cars going back somewhere. Could you give us the overview of, uh, of how that goes? Uh, yeah, so that, that system is, is based on a, a pri- proprietary wireless system that, that we developed in-house in conjunction with uh, certain vendors. Um, and each car transmits a stream of video and telemetry. Um, and it, it transmits those streams from the car uh, as an as an encoded stream, and it's received by a set of receiving equipment around the track. There's around about f- uh, forty of these uh, antennas and, and receive sites uh, dotted around through that through that data network. A car can be seen by up to ten of these sites at any one time, and each one of those is collecting that 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 broadcast that came off the car. As it hits those receive sites, it's encoded onto the data network, and all ten of those sites will send that data back to the UK. Uh, where the processing systems will deduplicate and we'll, on a packet by packet basis, we'll ensure that we've got one consistent clean output from from every one of those streams. Um, so every one of the cars is, is doing this broadcasting as it goes around, and as I mentioned earlier, sat on the grid with all the cars transmitting their video and telemetry feeds. That that stream back to the UK can be as high as about three and a half gigabits a second. I was expecting you to say it, would, it was going to hit the garages first or something like that, because I'm imagining the people that are most keenly interested in all that telemetry are the teams, the engineers, the folks that are working on paying attention to the car, doing their plans for the race, and so on. Does it hit the UK before it hits the garages? Uh, yes. So as, as the telemetry provider, we need to take all that information that we've acquired from the track, process it into uh, one consistent stream, that, and then send it back okay. to the team in the yeah. garage. And and, and okay. it does that across our uh, Formula One paddock network. Okay, so so you guys are doing all the signal processing in the UK uh, before it goes back to the garages. You've got to do your deduplication and send them that signal that 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 feed uh, that single feed with all of the uh, perfected data stream, if you will. Um, so there's some amount of latency that's there. It goes from the track to the UK, gets processed, is then sent back down, and that's near real time enough for them to tolerate whatever that latency would be. Because it seems like it could be, depending on where the race is, uh, hundreds of milliseconds or maybe even more than a second. So in, in the worst case scenario, somewhere like Australia, uh, there's a 200 millisecond round trip time. 
Um, it, 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 it does add latency. We can't get away from that. Again, the, the speed of light playing its part, but it doesn't add as much latency that it makes that data unusable. Okay, okay. Now, you mentioned that the in-car telemetry is a proprietary uh, system that was developed in-house uh, using, uh, obviously, wireless and so on. So so not Wi-Fi, as we would think of unlicensed Wi-Fi that is in you know, common use in the 2.4 and 5 gigahertz streams, correct? Yeah, that's correct. There are um, three frequencies that we use. Um, because like you say, the, the, the difficulty is where we're operating in different countries, there's different regulations, different regulatory domains. Um, so one thing that we have to do before turning up at an event is ensure that the frequencies we're using have been signed off. So there's a, a 10 gigahertz frequency that we use um, that's primarily used for the for the video because it's high bandwidth. There's a five gigahertz frequency that we use and a one and a half gigahertz. Um, and that's used through every event that we go to. Now, those are highly line of sight dependent frequencies. So as you were talking about the 40 different antennas that are around the track, uh, as many as 10 that could see the car, that uh, I, I'm right there where the, the antennas have got to see the vehicle. I mean, direct line of sight and strong signal attenuation in those frequencies too, where the, you've got to be pretty close to the antenna in order to get a clean transmission, right? Yes, that's right. You have got to be, you, I've got a very reasonable line of sight to those antennas. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, and this also brings to mind then security, yet another topic that we haven't talked about. You guys, with all the wireless transmissions that are going on around the track and just the nature of this, um, do you have unusual or special security concerns, um, ways that you deal with uh, people that might be trying to block uh, spectrum or get on the network and do things? Is there special security concerns that uh, that you have there? I think the, the biggest challenge we have are probably um, radio jammers, uh, not from malicious point of view, but um, when you've got a president or a, a king coming in, at that point, they will just jam everything, uh, which obviously has a sl ever so slight impact on our telemetry system. <laughs> So as in because there are notable people that arrive at the track and uh, then they've got their own entourage that comes through with their own radio comms, it just so happens to clobber what you guys are doing in track operations. That's correct, yeah. Um, uh, and the other, I mean, it's, again, it's not from a security point of view, but the other the other problem that we often have is, is radar. You know, we're Monaco, mm -hmm. for example. There's a lot of ships around and ships' radars can cause havoc as well. Hmm. Mm. Monaco must be a really difficult circuit physically too, because a lot of those streets are narrow, even getting cable around them. That must be the toughest circuit in my mind. Yeah, I've not actually been, I've managed to avoid Monaco um, <laughs> because it's, you have to get up very early in the morning, which I'm not a fan of. Um, I think <laughs> I think Lee's done Monaco a few times. <laughs> it, it does present its own challenges. Everything is tight, spaces at a premium. Yeah. Um, and and running the running the fibers, you know, the, the streets are narrow. Let alone when we when we install a, a track infrastructure, mm -hmm. but it, it brings unique opportunities. Uh, we, we've had to rig Wi-Fi on a yacht that moves in and out of the harbour wall twice a day. Um, it, it, the things that we just wouldn't necessarily have at a, at a normal at a normal <laughs> track. Yeah, that's right. And all, and one of the other things that sometimes I've had uh, in certain jobs I've had over the years is. Uh, there are important people in some locations who are not happy that their view is being blocked by a smelly network engineer. Uh, 
those sorts of things have happened to me at least anyway we've we've been known to be seen at the side of the track yes (laughs) (laughs) do you you have to worry about inter-team espionage things like uh, mercedes really wants to know what red bull is doing and so you you, do you put things in place to try to prevent one team from spying on another team's telemetry or something like that the 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 telemetry data itself is encrypted and and only the 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 teams have the the methods to decrypt their own data yeah that's too boring of an answer. I was hoping for something more, more <laughs> intriguing, but it's just, it is the obvious answer. So I'm not surprised at that. I mean, there's a whole thing. game here you could play with F1 hacking. <laughs> it's not just on the track, it's off the track, too. You know, uh, could you but imagine? No, but it's, but it, is, it, is, it is a, you know, it is a concern, right? We, we have to ensure that the network is secure so that um, teams can't take advantage. Um, yeah. So we, we operate all the best practices in the world see all the the paddock network is separated from each other there is there are firewalls separating we obviously encourage the teams to run their own files as well Mm. um, when they connect to our network so Mm. yeah we do we do have to be careful in that regard i think it's i I would think it's less the teams than third parties trying to you know get the signal early because if you're gambling on formula one if you can get the you know, the status two seconds before you could actually get, mm. make significant amounts of money on in running gambling mm. things like, sorry, I wish I did some work for gaming companies and I learned a lot about this sort of stuff. So mm. is there an internet connection at the track that you folks are responsible for? So we do have internet presence at the track, but it's not used for anything, um, production wise. So as part of, um, also doing the, the, the live production, Obviously, we also have um, people that are coming out to the track that need to work. So we have a, an office environment too that we sh- we ship around the world with us. Um, that's part of the event technical centre. The, so there's an admin office there, and of course, we need to provide um, internet connectivity for them. So the internet doesn't really play a big part in what we do. Mm. Most of it is, is private. We can't rely upon the internet, you know, especially right. uh, the further away we get. Um, you know, it's it, it's not a reliable communication method for us yeah and not reliable enough for for any of the things that you were talking about transmitting especially with the latency and jitter requirements being able to send duplicate streams and uh, you know and so on and then have that very predictable latency characteristic uh yeah it makes all the sense in the world well the internet might actually work for you here and there but you have to have very defined transport characteristics and you can only do that on uh on your own lines again with your as your with your communications partner tata that you've uh, mentioned a few times here Okay, guys, we've been picking your brains about all the uh, these interesting details about how you do what you do to deliver F1 to a global audience. Uh, but uh, but tell us a story. There's got to be a day where things went badly for you and it was production impacting and you lost some hair. Uh, could you tell us about it? So there was one time when uh, things didn't go quite according to plan. Um, but fortunately, I don't think anyone noticed. So we were actually live to air when this happened. Um, we sat there. Everything was was calm. Everyone was was serene. We were going out to millions of people. I think it was during free pack practice two at one of the events, and a red message popped up in Syslog, saying that the one of the core switches back in the UK had a fan failure, and we had thirty seconds until the chassis shut itself down. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> which, which is a slight Jeez. surprise when you're live to air and what, what like I mentioned a whole like, 30 seconds how much do you want how much do you want <laughs> i know exactly yeah but by the, by the time my brain had processed it i think it was you know i was 10 seconds in and then 
by the time my colleagues had stopped laughing because they thought I was, I was joking about, um, mm. that's when we started to uh, to get a few voices in our headsets saying, you know, we've just lost this, we've just lost this, what's happened? Um, and we've, we practice for this. Um, every single race, we do a disaster recovery test. We have to. We're a remote remote operation. We have to expect things to fail. I mean, they, they don't do that very often. But anyway, we're, yeah, I said we're live to air. Um, so I said to my colleague, look, I think what we need to do is shut down the the links between us and the UK because we weren't quite sure, you know, you're going to have TCNs flying about, Spanning Trees mm. going to be doing its mm. thing. All sorts of nastiness could have happened. So the best thing to do was just to isolate the track from the UK and to carry on as normal. So we invoked our disaster recovery procedure um, whilst I ran about panicking slightly um <laughs> and just just making sure that everyone knew that we weren't messing about this was this was a, a real inv- invocation of, of dr um mm. and yeah it the show carried on the, the cars were still on track nobody noticed so mm. yeah that was that was one of the one of the worst days but also i guess one of the one of the best days because it proved that that things the things worked you know, the worst part about that is you probably panicked. You were probably in a state of high dudgeons. And at the end of the day, nothing happened. Everything worked as planned, you know, t- situation nominal, like a space flight, right? And you're sitting there congratulating yourself for years of effort and planning and testing and practicing, and no one notices. It's the most crushing thing. It is, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Um but I'm glad that nobody noticed, right? That that is that is the best outcome we could have we could have had that day. Mm, yeah. From our perspective as network engineers, we, the the infrastructure we built is fault tolerant. It did its thing. It did exactly as we expected. We'd practiced 20, 30, 40 times before that yeah, event, yeah. and mm-hmm. and the processes, the procedures, they they all work. And David and the team uh, kept the infrastructure stable. Yeah. Mm. That's a nice story to end on, gentlemen. Um, if people want to follow you guys on the internet, if you're not too busy doing Formula One stuff, uh, are you out there on the socials? Are you on Twitter, or LinkedIn, or something where people could reach out to you? Uh, yep, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn. Lee Wright is on LinkedIn. What about you, David? Yeah, if people um, people can look at my really terrible code that I don't maintain anymore by going to github.com forward slash David hyphen Ramsden. Um, and there's a link on there to my website and also my my LinkedIn very nice. Well, thank you both for, uh, for, for you guys volunteered. You, you approached us and said, Hey, we'd like to re- record a show with you guys about uh, what we do in F1. And it's super cool. And uh, from what we were talking about earlier, maybe you guys, uh, or someone else in the F1 IT team shows up on some of the other shows in heavy networking, uh, or in uh, the packet pushes podcast now where this is heavy networking, but maybe, uh, maybe there's some room for some other shows. We can get into the wireless in more detail, maybe some Kubernetes stuff. We'll see. Maybe we can uh, space them out over 2023 and have you guys back to talk about what you're doing. And uh, thanks again for uh, for coming on the show today, David Ramsden and Lee Wright from F1. And thank you out there listening for staying all the way to the end. You are a most excellent human. And if you like shows like this, you should check out all of the other fantastic podcasts that we are making over here at the Packet Pushers Podcast Network, including our brand new one, Heavy Wireless. Your host, Keith Parsons, is talking Wi-Fi and all things wireless networking on the Heavy Wireless Podcast. Subscribe now and catch the very next episode. Last but not least, remember that too much networking would never be enough.